lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. I am Steve Dace. Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre are here with me, as are all of you at 888-900-3393. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the show. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And you can also follow us on Parlor. At Steve Dace, just my name there. And then youtube.com slash Steve Dace is where you can go subscribe to get free clips of this show that you can sample yourself and then share with others at youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Coming up on the program today, we have a pretty busy Thursday. I believe the term du jour these days is showrunner, right? That's what it's called now. Not producer, director, writer. I believe it is called showrunner when you are essentially the, oh, yeah. uh, no, the brains behind an episodic television program, right? Isn't, isn't that the official name that we use now, showrunner? Todd I think is looking at me like he was born in 1848. The okay. term du jour is hanging out to dry, which is what Todd and I yes. are doing to you right yes. now. Yes, okay. So. I, I, but I believe the cool kids in fandom lingo, it is known as showrunner. Dallas Jenkins is the showrunner for the show The Chosen. That now you're nodding your head. Now you know what I'm talking. Well, I about. thought you were talking about K-pop before. Now I'm now I'm with you. The chosen, I'm down with. All right, Dallas Jenkins is the showrunner for the chosen. Uh, the you know the show that 897 of you have emailed me about in the last few months. Right. And I'm sure in my email inbox right now are 898, 899, including him, 900, 901, including the showrunner himself. Right. So he is going to be joining us here coming up later on in this hour. Uh, also, next hour, some Theology Thursday. We're going to answer a question from one of our listeners coming up in Theology Thursday and then back by no demand. But I just had nothing else to fill the final segment with. So it returns three non-political questions where Aaron's banality takes center stage yes aaron i suppose i should probably think of some questions to ask and there it is there there it is it's 1102 you guys have completely hung me out to dry twice you know what let's go for the trifecta what are you guys thinking about we should do for an overtime today since we forgot to talk about that Do you remember how the week started? But you, it, 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 it's the first time I've ever heard you do this thing. The week started, and, and you're like, gosh, who's our guest today? Yeah. On the air, you yeah. said that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't just get here like five minutes ago. We had we had all kinds of time. We were sitting here talking and just totally forgot that we needed to come up with a... Uh, uh, with an overtime today. So, Todd, uh, you, uh, you, that you've been assigned that over there on the copy desk. You got I'm it. on it. All right. Before we get maybe. to all of that, maybe, here's Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by March 17th. That is the day the online publication Stat News published a piece from Stanford epidemiologist Dr. John P. Ioannidis, one of the most academically cited epidemiologists in the world. The piece was entitled A Fiasco in the Making. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we're making decisions without reliable data. In two areas of that piece, Dr. Ioannidis wrote, quote, 
Even some of the most mild or common cold-type coronaviruses that have been known for decades can have case fatality rates as high as 8% when they infect elderly people in nursing homes. In fact, such mild coronaviruses infect tens of millions of people every year and account for 3 to 11% of those hospitalized in the U.S. with lower respiratory infections each winter. Dr. Ian Edis concludes the piece by saying... One can only hope that, much like in 1918, life will continue. Conversely, with lockdowns of months, if not years, life largely stops. Short-term and long-term consequences are entirely unknown, and billions, not just millions, of lives may be eventually at stake. If we decide to jump off the cliff, we need some data to inform us about the rationale of such an action and the chances of landing somewhere safe. Fast forward from those prophetic words on March 17th to July 9th, and Dr. Ioannidis was interviewed by medical doctor Saurabh Jha for the healthcare blog. The topic of the written interview was a post-mortem of sorts on the decision to lock down versus the data used to enact the shutting down of wide swaths of the American economy. On his now infamous piece at Stat News, Dr. Ioannidis says, quote, Like many, I saw a train approaching. Like many, I couldn't sense the train's precise size and speed. Many said we should be bracing for calamity, and in many ways I agreed. But I was concerned that we might inflict undue damage, what I'd call iatrogenic harm, controlling the pandemic. I was pleading for better data on COVID-19 to make our response more precise and proportionate. On the allegation he was urging inaction in the face of the pandemic, he says, quote, That wasn't my position, though I can see why people thought I was advocating inaction when I was actually asking, begging actually, for better data to inform our actions. The two, decisions and knowledge, aren't mutually exclusive. We can design policy on imperfect information, yet keep gathering evidence so that our approach is fine-tuned. A decision such as an economic lockdown should be assumed provisional, awaiting more research and better information information. Of course, we can't know everything there is to know about a novel virus in the beginning. Inaction is a false choice. What we're choosing between is an immutable decision and a decision updated by emerging information rather than between inaction and gathering evidence. Asked if he was against the lockdowns, he writes, by February, we had missed the window for nipping the novel coronavirus in the bud. Had we acted sooner with aggressive testing, tracing, and isolating like the South Koreans, the Taiwanese, and Singapore Singaporeans did, the virus wouldn't have spread as wildly as it did. The biggest lesson from this pandemic is that the costs of delaying controlling the infection can be substantial. Act decisively in haste or repent at leisure. Once we missed the boat, the lockdown was inevitable. I say inevitable grudgingly because I don't think it should have been reached that eventually. He goes on to write, Once the country was locked down, I felt like we should be focusing and minimizing its duration. I view lockdown as a drug with dangerous side effects when its use is prolonged. It's an extreme measure, a last resort, the nuclear option. A country should be locked down not one minute longer than absolutely necessary. We have to keep assessing the risk-benefit calculus by collecting and analyzing data, making sure we're measuring the denominator accurately and finding vulnerable and not vulnerable subgroups. On comparing COVID to the flu, quote, it's true that mortality of seasonal flu is an estimation, but this estimation isn't science fiction. It's derived from sound scientific principles. The data on seasonal flu, or flu-like illnesses, is robust. 
We know much more about the seasonal flu than COVID-19. Because of the attention on coronavirus, we're better at knowing that a deceased person had coronavirus than had the flu. That means we're good at knowing when someone died with coronavirus, but not necessarily that they died from the infection. We assume that dying with coronavirus is dying from coronavirus. On the models using faulty data for projecting death tolls, quote, it's perfectly reasonable following the precautionary principle and basing our response on the worst case forecast. But as scientists, it's not reasonable staring such huge residual uncertainty in its face and doing nothing about it. It's our job to reduce uncertainty by collecting more robust data. And finally, on the flack he's received for being a contrarian voice, quote, the outrage propagated by social media is a force of its own and destroys any intelligent discourse, civil or uncivil. Once the outrage gets going, platforms for academic discourse censor and the discourse just doesn't happen. I was unable to publish my essay about nosocomial spread of COVID-19 in nursing homes and hospitals. I submitted to many outlets. I suspect the editors feared social media backlash against my raising an uncomfortable issue. Fear isn't healthy for science. And that's what happened while we were away. Wow. So that's Dr. John Ioannidis at Stanford University, one of their chief epidemiologists at what last year was ranked the number four medical school in the entire United States of America. One of the finest medical schools on planet Earth. And I could just summarize all of that for you by simply saying everything we've told you for the last few months was right. He just said it better and smarter because he's smarter than us. And the reason we were right, I don't know a damn thing about epidemiology. I just did the research on people who do, like him. I, I don't know anything about epidemiology. I wouldn't know how to do epidemiology from a, uh, from a lobotomy. I, I don't, that's not my area of expertise. Uh, research, though, and asking questions and getting answers and knowing what's BS and what's not, that is my area of expertise. And the reason so much of what he says there sounds familiar, if you've been watching and listening to this show for the last few months, is because this show did the research of the last few months without regard for who it would offend, where it would take us. Whether we'd like the answers or not, we didn't try to reverse engineer anything. We just simply followed the data. That's all that we did the whole time. The whole time. And the original counter theory that I began pushing back on this with, how do you know how to flatten a curve when you don't know when it began? How many times did I ask that question in the early days of this? What is it, day 122 of the 15 days to flatten the curve? And what does he say right there? And remember, I was on a conference call with some of his peers at Stanford University about a month into lockdown, and I asked them this question on the call, and they did not want to get into it. They said it was too early to tell. But you heard him go there specifically on his own in that montage right there. He said, hey, by the time we got into February, it was clear it was too late to lock this down. Because it was here the whole time, just like I said. And it's not because I've got a cauldron. I'm Nostradamus here looking into a bowl and spewing forth nonsensical quatrains that can be interpreted to mean anything people want for the next 500 years. Nope. It's because I just followed the research of the scientists. That's what I did. 
That's all that I did. I'm not smarter than any of you on this. I'm not. I just did the work. And just reported back what the work said. I listened to guys like him. As opposed to Anthony Fauci, who's uh, doing fashion shoots now. Did you see that? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. So you stay locked down. You give up your way of life. No school for your kids, no football, another year, no proms, no homecomings, no weddings. You give up your way of life so Anthony Fauci can do uh, can be a, a, a cover boy for a fashion outlet. Straight up. I didn't listen to fools like him. Biggest fraud, biggest fiend I've encountered in my career, in all, the, in, in all of American history I've researched. I hate him, I, and I have no problem saying it. I hate him like I would hate any false prophet that was literally deceiving people to hell. I hate him with the heat of a thousand suns. What he has done to this country, what he has done to the people of this country is a crime against humanity. He's a fraud. And he ought to be in a prison cell. Never, we had to put him in a hole and bury the hole. Instead, we should have listened to guys like this. who just followed the data the entire time. And he was proven right. Everything he wrote March 17th has been proven right today. And tomorrow is July 17th. And if the White House and your governors would have listened to men like this back on March the 17th, things would look a lot different going into July 17th tomorrow. One of the things he mentioned is, hey, I I couldn't get things published because of cancel culture. This is another reminder when there's an opportunity for us to do business with people who share our values. We can't do that, unfortunately, in every endeavor. But when the opportunity to do so presents itself, take advantage of it. That's where Patriot Mobile comes in. They share your values. They're never going to charge you hidden fees. And unlike Big Mobile, they won't send your hard-earned money to the people in charge of cancel culture or Planned Parenthood or junk flat earth science, etc. You get the same reliable nationwide service and support a company at the same time that loves your country, shares your values, and supports your constitution, puts people before profits. Switching is easy. Keep your phone number, bring your own phone, or buy a new one. Right now, when you join their family of freedom-loving Americans, you can get a free activation, plus a free gift with the offer code STEVE. Veterans and first responders, you save even more. So please make the switch today. Call 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-PATRIOT. Or visit patriotmobile.com slash Steve. Again, patriotmobile.com slash Steve. Get a free activation plus a free gift at patriotmobile.com slash Steve with the offer code Steve. So what happens? What, what happens when a country in its public health policy, what, what does a non-politicized public health policy look like? When, when, when we don't follow flat earth junk science, but the actual science, what does it look like? What happens when a country has no other agenda other than What's the truth? What's the best approach for the millions of people that have entrusted their, their health care to us? Not whatever any other agenda is on the table. I want to show you what it looks like. In lieu of a vaccine that can induce it, you pursue natural herd immunity as humanity has had to do for thousands of years, before and without vaccines. 
That means that a country would recognize that there are forces at work in this world, in nature, that are beyond us. That as a species, we must do our best to continue on while acknowledging that. The perfect utopian solution, not always possible. Some evils we simply and sadly have to live with, and we can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. So such a country would do their best to secure the most vulnerable as best they can and, and let those the data shows weren't nearly as vulnerable out to live their lives. And yes, that would also mean taking the risk that they would contract this virus because um, you want them to. You would help, they would help you to weaken it by putting the virus and pitting the virus up against their superior immune systems. This is what we've done as a species for thousands of years. Now, that would also mean, though, that such a nation would suffer an initial peak of cases and deaths that other nations which went into lockdown may not. But they would be much better off on the back end. They would truly flatten the curve. And once they did, it would stay flattened. Such a nation exists. Its name is Sweden. On June 24th, Sweden reported 1,800 cases of coronavirus. Yesterday, it reported just 125. Three of the last four days, it has reported fewer than 200. It has reported more than 500 new cases in a nation of 10 million only one time since July the 4th. Sweden reported a peak of 115 deaths on April 5th. It hasn't had more than 80 deaths since April the 24th. It hasn't had more than 60 deaths since May 18th. It hasn't had more than 40 deaths since June 4th. Do you, do you notice a pattern here? It hasn't had more than 30 deaths since June 17th. It hasn't had more than 20 deaths since June 28th. It has only had 96 total deaths so far in July, with 14 being its worst day so far this month. Three of the past four days, Sweden has had one or zero deaths. And by the way, Sweden is coding deaths exactly as we are. If you die with the virus, you are being coded as having died from the virus. So even with those exact same coding metrics we're using, these are their numbers. Now let's bring it back home here and contrast Sweden with my former home state of Michigan, each with roughly 10 million people, the same population. Michigan has added 12,108 cases in the last 30 days since it began reopening. Despite having one of the most restrictive and longest lockdowns in the country all spring. Remember, Michigan was the state where you couldn't go and buy seed to plant a garden during their lockdown. Yesterday, Michigan added 1,049 new cases. Its largest day of new cases since May the 14th which is, by the way, when it was in lockdown, it was spiking new cases. Michigan's last day of cases this high was May 14th when it was still in a lockdown. I thought lockdowns worked. Michigan has added 500 new cases six days already in July. Thankfully, 
Other than July 7th and 11th, though, uh, when it reported a combined 58 deaths, the mortality in Michigan has remained very low. But that is likely because the younger, healthier people are being allowed back out again. So the virus, as it did in Sweden, is now competing and coming up against stronger immune systems. Plus, it is much warmer in Michigan right now than summer typically is in Sweden, too. Therefore, the absolute worst decision the governor of Michigan, Governor Whitmer, could make is to reinstall a lockdown. If deaths stay as low as they are now, while cases increase, Michigan can accomplish this summer what Sweden already did. Natural herd immunity. What America would have also likely already had if we had not instituted mass lockdowns. The absolute dumbest management decision based on flat earth junk science in human history. Show me one dumber. Gentlemen, your thoughts. It's going to take a while and I could be wrong. Because when it comes to abortion, I honestly thought we had come to the turning of the tide with the bags of frozen baby body parts, and we didn't. But this is such an appalling breach of science and reason, what has happened here, concerning everything Steve has talked about so far, that this may be one of the great turnings of the tide of not just within science of worldview uh, uh, of truly getting back at the very least to genuine Socratic dialogue. Can I, can I reinforce what you just said? Please. Sweden is considered the most secular pagan country in all of Europe. It is estimated that the evangelical church is going to die out in Sweden by 2050. 2% of Sweden's population are regular church attenders, despite the fact 63% of the people claim to belong to the Church of Sweden, okay? From a worldview standpoint, they should... <laughs> we should not be on the same wavelength no. here, right? No. Why are we? And I have no idea what Don, Dr. John Ioannidis' belief system is. I have no clue. Well, in that interview, he says uh, he, he would not be con- considered conservative. Okay. I, I, I didn't, I'd never even heard the guy until this began. It's about, are we going to follow the data or not? Are yeah. we going to follow the science or not? The objective truth or not? Yeah. I go back to the interview we did with Dr. Scott Atlas of Stanford University on the show, what, two, three months ago, and he kept repeating this mantra. We don't just throw out the laws of virology. We don't just throw out the laws of, in, of, in, of, in, of immunology. Why are we doing this here in the United States? Why? Why, why is the guy who puts the fun in fundamentalism researching what life is like in the most pagan, secular country in the Western world, Sweden? Because at least they won't lie to me there, right? At least they're going to, at least when something hits the fan like a pandemic like this, they're, at least they've proven they're going to follow the, they're going to follow the data, Todd. And for whatever reason, we don't want to do that. I think we probably can guess a few of the reasons. We simply have a large cachet of those in this country that don't want to do so. Yeah, there's, there's those scenes in Star Trek 
that you know of where uh, they, they go to some planet and their medicine is way behind and Dr. McCoy comes in with his little zapper and fixes right. it. He's like, right. oh, this is the Dark Ages. I think people are going to look back on what we did here as just Dark Age nonsense. I pray uh, that's the case. Uh, and it's fascinating to me. I, I, I've had this conversation, I know, with Aaron off air, but uh, w- back when I would have uh, vaccine conversations with people uh, online pre-coronavirus, the first comeback always, always at me was that you don't understand anything about herd immunity. <laughs> Now those very same reason people are all the Karens who are terrified. Gotta have the vaccine. Gotta have the vaccine. The people who say Doctor United is a, I won't listen to him. I, doctor, they're making statues in their own yards out of popsicle sticks, out out of Fauci. It speaks to what we're talking about. This is scientism. It isn't science that is being practiced. I I. I I pray I'm right in my gut that our children, Steve, when they take the mantle of leadership in this country, look back at this as one of the greatest farces in all of American history, because that'll be a sign of hope that they're still there. We still have a country, A, and B, that we learn something from this garbage. What's the difference, again, Aaron, between science and scientism? Let me provide an example here. Uh, Here's an example. The panic porn over the laws of immunology and virology no longer matter. If you have antibodies, that doesn't mean you're healed. That doesn't mean you're immune to the virus. And they disappear quickly, right? I mean, how much of that panic porn have we heard peddled over the last few weeks? Mm-hmm. As there's been more and more reopening. And this was done to discredit all the antibody tests that showed the infection rate was far greater than we ever mm-hmm. knew. Therefore, the mortality rate was far lower than we ever feared, right? right. Study peer-reviewed out of, at, from Nature Magazine today. Peer-reviewed study from Nature Magazine, published in Nature Magazine out of Singapore today, that finds new study shows 17 years of potential T-cell immunity from SARS-infected patients. 17 years. Now, I don't know if this study is better than the ones that say that are dubious of, of, of immunity. I don't know that. Here's, but I, so I don't, I don't know which epidemiology is, is superior. That's not my area of ex- expertise. Calling out your BS is my area of expertise, though. And when I'm going to Google, when I can Google, it, it, do antibodies make me healthy or, or, or save me from, from getting coronavirus again? And the first 10 pages are all no, 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 no. And this study will never even show up, even though it's peer-reviewed in the hard right-wing publication known as Nature Magazine. See, we're not debating epidemiology. We're debating your horse bleep. That's what we're debating. I'm fine with an epidemiological debate. I'm totally fine with putting Anthony Fauci and Dr. Johnny and Edie's in a room and, and all oh. of them and let them all go at it and come and let us film it and let the experts debate themselves and, and we come out of this all looking smarter. I'm totally fine with that. I'm not equipped to have a conversation on this level with those guys. What I am equipped, though, is to know when you... I work in politics... Hell yeah, I know when you're lying to me. If there's an if I'm an expert on anything after working 12 damn years full time in politics, it's of when somebody is freaking lying to me. What's our show mantra this year? Yeah, assume you're being lied to, indeed. Aaron. And that's where I was gonna go. The scientism part of this, the scientism aspect of this. <clears throat> um it is a telltale sign of a cultist 
or the cult of scientism, progressivism. I lump them all together because they go hand in hand because they they deny uh, objective metrics, objective truth, transcendent truth, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. Uh, a surefire sign, just as we said uh, weeks and weeks ago. All these antibody tests, if they're all wrong, they're all wrong in the same direction. Just as I said about the polls with Donald Trump, if they're all wrong, they're all wrong in the same direction. Just as it is with those things, if, if, if you see and if you're wondering if somebody really truly is just scared or if they're just appealing to scientism and or adhering to it, if they are absolutely convinced, and they are, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. It was supposed to be a Hawkeye, Iowa Hawkeyes related podcast. And of course, there's nothing to talk about right now. But on the off chance that there was, I tuned in, and the the the, the hosts on this show just absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced all of the worst things. If you're arguing with somebody, or you see somebody who is just absolutely convinced. And every aspect, every single little aspect of this virus only points one direction, which is the worst case possible scenario. You're probably dealing with a scientist, uh, a scientismist. I don't know, whatever you want to call him, because uh, the amount of religious fervor right now, I mean, guys, and the lack of self-awareness. People were saying, don't wear a mask, don't wear a mask, don't wear a mask early on. And now if you don't wear a mask, you're a terrible person who hates grandma. I mean, there are a legion of examples like this where it's just a 180 degree spin from what the same people were saying a few weeks ago. It, it, I, don't, I don't know how you argue with that. I don't know how you do it. You can't. You have to defeat it. Exactly. There, there, you cannot argue with it. You simply are going to have to defeat it. Maybe we can't. I know this, though. I'm going down swinging. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show. Deborah could not believe what happened to her home. Um, she learned she was the victim of home title fraud when she found out she was getting evicted and she never even sold her home. It's a devastating crime that can cost you your home and title fraud is not, repeat, not covered by your homeowner's insurance. The only folks that you can trust to protect your home against uh, a crime wave that the FBI is warning about known as home title fraud is home title lock. Cyber thieves have discovered that our home's titles are kept online, so they forge your name on your deed, stating you sold your home and refile it as themselves with being the new owner. And in Deborah's case, again, she didn't even learn about this until she was getting evicted from her home. Home title lock. They will put a virtual barrier around your home's title so this doesn't happen to you. And the instant they detect tampering, they will mobilize to shut it down. But first things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com right now and register your address to see if you're already a victim and don't even know it. And then use the promo code Steve to get 30 free days of protection. That's promo code Steve for 30 free days of protection when you go to HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Well, I have I have been emailed about this maybe more than anything other than coronavirus so far this year. Um, it is 
in in what has been a year that reads like a chapter out of Dickens Bleak House, this has been one of the interesting grassroots bright spots. Has been the success, and it's gone under the radar for a lot of um, uh, for a lot of mainstream America. But it has been the success of this television program that has been grassroots funded. And last I was on their app, which you can get to watch all the episodes, I want to say they were up to 45 million views or something like that. It was some incredible number. And the showrunner for the show called The Chosen, Dallas Jenkins, joins us now here on Blaze TV radio and podcast. It is a pleasure to have you with us, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. And I apologize in advance. There's some lawn mowing going on. So if you hear that, uh, it's not my fault. But I uh, apologize if there's any distracting noise. It's all right. It only adds to the ambiance. That's all right. Yes. Um, authenticity. Yes, authenticity. There you go. You, I think, are the 898th person to email us about your show. Uh, that's how <laughs> we found you, as you emailed us. I cannot tell you how many people have contacted me on all my social media, have inundated my inbox with tales of, of their love and devotion for this show. First and foremost, tell us what the show is about. Well, thank you. Thank you for that inter in in introduction. And I was getting inundated with emails as well from people who said you said something about it on the air. So I thought, oh, I might as well reach out and let them know we're, we're here. Um, so The Chosen is the first ever multi-season show about the life of Christ. There's been movies, there's been miniseries, but there's never actually been a multi-season show that allows you to actually really dig into the stories and the people from the Gospels in a way that other multi-season shows can do. So I'm wearing a shirt that says, get used to different. It's based on a line from episode Episode 7 that Jesus says to Simon when Simon Peter is all upset that Jesus is calling Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. And uh, Jesus says, get used to different. And that's been, I think, the hallmark of this whole show. The way it was financed is different. Uh, we did, we, it was all through crowdfunding. Uh, we ended up becoming the number one highest crowdfunded media project of all time, raising over $10 million from 19,000 people just for season one, which I didn't expect, which was kind of ridiculous and extraordinary. And then um, we're also the first ever multi-season show, which I just mentioned, but now we're on our own app. And so that's been the thing that has been off the radar. We're, we've kind of been doing this outside the system, but we created our own app, which allows you to watch the show for free and connect to your streaming device without a subscription, without payment, without delay or anything. You can be watching within 90 seconds after you get this app. So that's been kind of the, I think, especially since COVID hit, and people had time to watch stuff and watch something new that they weren't really wasn't really on their radar has really caused the show to kind of explode uh, all over all over the world. We're translated in over 50 languages as we speak and only growing. So it's kind of been a crazy ride that I've been on uh, for the last few months. Give us your background, Dallas, because the this this is clearly not your first rodeo. This show has high production value from what I have seen uh, and higher than is typically associated with this particular genre. Although in recent years, I think it has absolutely upped its ante from, you know, some of the schmaltz and cheese factor that it, it kind of got stereotyped with some of it of its own, if not much of it of its own uh, devising. But so you're not putting this together on a lark. You have some background here uh, when it comes to this kind of content. So what, what is it? Well, I've been doing movies and whatnot for about 20 years. I got started. My, my dad happens to be the author of the Left Behind books, which are... They, they sold a few copies of that. 
few, yeah. a few copies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I might. Have, there's a probably a few co laying around somewhere in some used, dusty bookstore. Maybe about twenty-eight yeah. million of them somewhere. Yeah, right. Yeah, actually, about sixty million of them. Believe it or not. See, but, I told uh, you, you sold a few. Yeah, yeah. right. Yes. So, um, and ironically enough, my dad first the Left Behind series first launched when he was my age. Uh, now that I am now, uh, which is when the Chosen is launching. So it's kind of an interesting thing, but. Um, for the last 20 years, I have been doing movies, uh, and, and the Left Behind movie that came out 20 years ago was the first project that I worked on a little bit. I didn't do it, and in fact, when, when it was about to get made, my dad and I were kind of not thrilled with where it was going, so we started our own thing. And uh, so, yeah, for about 20 years, I've been doing movies with various levels of success, some of which were, were pretty successful, but the last one that I did before The Chosen was actually my biggest failure. I had partnered with some really huge production companies in Los Angeles, uh, some of the biggest in the world who were interested in doing faith-based projects and and partnered with me on a on a movie that I was really passionate about called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. And it was all lined up to be really great and do really well. And it was coming out in theaters on Inauguration Day in 2017, believe it or not. And, uh, and then it just bombed at the box office. And in just a couple of hours, I went from being a director with a very bright future because they wanted to do multiple movies with me to a director with no future. And that led me to pour myself into a short film for my church's Christmas Eve service, which I shot on my friend's farm 20 minutes from me here in Illinois. And it was about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds. And it was a small thing. It was just a little short film for my church coming off of this movie that I had an opportunity to do with Hollywood. And it felt like this significant drop in opportunity and production value. But that is what was the catalyst for this amazing crowdfund that happened and, and raised $10 million from 19,000 people and launched this whole thing. So as cool as it is, yes, I do have 20 years of experience. Yes, I've had some other projects that were pretty successful, but this project was birthed by failure. It would not exist if I hadn't have had a pretty significant career devastation that ultimately led to a small little project for my church that now has grown into this, this crazy thing that's happening now. I've watched the first two episodes of this and it's clear that two things are clear that you you guys take the subject matter very seriously number 1 but then number 2 you expect clearly that the audience does too this is not watered down into some vapid you know stereotypical american megachurch 20 minutes, uh, you know, sermon, you walk out of here feeling good and then, you know, punch the clock and we bring the next group in for the next 45 minutes. I mean, this, this you have to put your thinking cap on to watch this. You have to be engaged with this. And, and I mean this as a sincere compliment. What it reminded me of in the first couple of episodes is I absolutely love, I think it was, um, and I always get their names mixed up, Fellini or Zeffirelli, who did the Jesus of Nazareth miniseries? Zeffirelli. Zeffirelli, Zeffirelli. In, in, the, in like 1979, right? right. It, it, it reminded me a little bit, tonally, reminded me a little bit of that, in that the, the subject matter is taken very seriously, but it's, it just assumes that the audience is not, its audience is not ignorant of this subject matter, or if it comes in ignorant of it, can, can at least pick up on it if, if they're seriously invested in it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I was, I'm glad you clarified at the very end too, because what's interesting about it is the more specific that we get and the more tuned in on, for example, the Jewishness of Jesus, the Jewish culture, we really spend a lot of time on that too. Mm -hmm. We're really hyper-focused on the details. That's basically the what the entire first episode sets up is that aspect of it, right? Yeah. Right, right. And so um, the more specific we've gotten, the more tuned in we've gotten, the more 
um, thoughtful we've been. And like you just said, when you watch it, you have to be paying attention. You have to, this is like a regular show. This isn't just, we go from Bible verse to Bible verse, miracle to miracle, and you just watch it going, oh, I remember that from the Bible. I remember that from the Bible. Um, the first, you know, some people, when they watch the first episode, actually are like, gosh, in the first 25 minutes, I was almost confused because I was wondering, well, where's Jesus? When is he going to show up? And he does show up uh, at the end of the episode one. And when he does, it's a really cool experience. I say all that to say, People who aren't as familiar with the story have liked this show more than other projects, Jesus or Bible projects, because it feels like a regular show. We don't um, cater to the audience in that way where we just make it so such a pretty package and tie mm-hmm. it with such a pretty easy bow that you don't have to be engaged as much to, to appreciate it. And I think that's what's held back Bible projects in the past. Jesus of Nazareth is an exception, but where you're just, you just kind of take it in as a, as a viewer um, going, oh, this is a nice, uh, rem- you know, memory. This is, this reminds me of these stories from the Bible that I like so much, but you don't really get emotionally or intellectually engaged. And what we're really trying to do with this show is, is foster that. And what has happened is it's become even more beloved than I expected, especially by children. I did not expect six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, teenagers to like the show. And we're hearing every day from parents who say their whole family loves it and wants to watch it repeatedly. Um, I, I can only explain that as in a spiritual sense. I do believe that God sometimes removes, uh, I don't know, the blinders or the scales from people's eyes when he has something important to say. And uh, clearly, he's got something important to say with his show, and it's it's transcending cultural barriers language barriers and age barriers that we didn't expect so where's this go in the future great question um we are figuring that out now we because of this we've got this pay it forward program where the show is totally free so you can watch all eight episodes right now free and easy on our app no restrictions no delays no subscription required free well, how do we do future episodes and seasons? You know, as well as anyone, streaming costs money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we we lose money every time someone streams it. However, we did this pay it forward program where when you're done watching it or at any point, you can pay it forward so that other people can watch it for free if they'd like to and also help finance future episodes and seasons. The more free we made it, the more easy to access we made it, we actually ended up quadrupling our income from this pay it forward. So since COVID hit, the show has exploded. So we have now raised well, well over $6 million towards wow. season two. We're going to be doing another uh, crowdfund investment round in, in probably about two months, which will help us get season three also financed. But we're going to be shooting season two either this fall or early next year. It depends a little bit on which location. Um, we're, we're, we're finding our locations right now. And COVID, of course, is something we're having to navigate. But um we intend to do seven seasons of this. Um, at this point, it seems like there's no concern about the, raising the, the finances for that. Um, we're about a year ahead of where we thought we would be at this point. So seven seasons, it's a nice, good biblical number. Uh, we want to get all the way through. Uh, spoiler alert, Jesus does die at one point. And then double spoiler alert, he does come back. I don't want to give anything away, but we are going to cover that in depth in season six and seven. And then we're also hearing from people who really want us to get keep going and go into the book of Acts. But right now, one season at a time, we're focused on season two, and uh, we're hoping to do that this fall. If there's people in our audience that want to support this, how can they do that? Well, you go to the app, you you you, you download it, it's free. Um, you can also, if you want, get our, our shirts and gear. It's just the chosen app, by the way. That's, that's all you have to yeah. search for in the app store. Yeah. Yeah, very easy to find. It's a perfect name for it. It's the chosen. And um, we're actually, you'll see right away when you get there, 
tremendous reviews where they got like a 4.9 in the app store one of the we've been one of the top 50 entertainment apps uh on google and, and apple for about half a year now so it's really been it works well the app really is nice uh and works well and uh, when you're in that app if you want if you love the show and you want other people to see it pay it forward and let them see it for free if you can't i know we're in a time where the government is literally forcing you into poverty right now for some of you um don't do it. Just watch the show. I mean, don't pay it forward. Watch the show. Enjoy it. That's why we have this pay it forward program. But if you have the means to do so uh, and you want us to do future episodes and seasons and you want us to keep outside the system and not be reliant on a big studio to, to write a check, uh, pay it forward and uh, it'll allow us to do more. Well, Dallas, I'll tell you, in, in my career, it is a short list of things that my audience has been more has taken more of an initiative to try to put on my radar and get my attention with than what you guys have accomplished here. So um, it's it's clearly touched a nerve in our little corner of the world, and uh, it is blessing a lot of people, man. So God bless you. I mean, what an incredible story, and congratulations. Keep it going. Appreciate that. And uh, you keep it going, too. you got to watch episodes three through eight. The show only gets better from here. First two episodes are kind of set up. The rest of it, I think you'll really appreciate. So, All right, man. Thanks. Hey, it was, hey I, I really respect your work. Thank you for you know looking us up, and it was a pleasure getting you on. Yeah, you too, brother. We'll talk soon. You bet. Take care. Thoughts on that conversation? Well, if that's just a setup, I've only seen the first episode. I was not prepared to be as moved as I was. It, it is that can he still hear us i hope because I, I want him to know that it's it was just a phenomenal experience the craftsmanship of his storytelling about uh the main the main character is a story we all know in the first episode uh but it makes you feel her story i've never f- it, her story has always been meant to serve jesus's story mm-hmm. and it, it works the other way around i mean it, J- jesus is serving her story you see it in a way you've never seen before it pulls hard on you and the reason it's so powerful just in terms of the crap you know the story but he tells it in a way where you you, you if you have an understanding of biblical history you can guess that the character is who it is but you're not certain until the very end and i, I it was a wallop for me i i, I was uh, i shed a few tears because you felt the great gift of grace and rescuing somebody from the pit of hell. It was awesome. Uh, just listening to the background and Dallas's story and how this project was conceived. It is, it is really interesting. Uh, and that's a, a, a very underwhelming word, but it is interesting. Isn't it? That some of the, the biggest and best things in our lives come out of a perceived trial or setback or mm. failure. And hearing that story from from Dallas, uh, you know, reminded me of, of stories I've heard in, from my own family, uh, others, you know, who I know. And it is, it is um, as long as we stay faithful, uh, it is, I think, a mark, when, a, a mark of following and being led by the Holy Spirit when something good comes out of a perceived failure. And this is definitely, I mean, that it's a hit. It's definitely a hit. And as he said, uh, you know, towards the beginning of the interview there, this wouldn't have happened. This wouldn't have happened without his, you know, what he perceived as a failure uh, with the, the movie uh, back in 2017. So great interview. Hey, man, my life's totally different if I passed the quick trip managerial exam. <laughs> yeah. Think about that failure. Yeah. 
right, we'll come back. Hour two, Theology Thursday text. Back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV radio podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre. If you are a podcast listener, if you haven't done so already, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review, because the more of those we get, the more it helps the show to grow. Thank you to the thousands of you that have left us one of those five-star reviews already. Make sure, as a podcast listener, you hit that subscribe button wherever you podcast from as well. 888-900-3393. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email us. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, at Parlor at Steve Dace. YouTube.com slash Steve Dace is where you can go to get samples of this show that you can watch for free and then share with others. If you're struggling with chronic pain, this is the kind of pain in your back, your knees, uh, neck, shoulder pain, joints, stiffness. The underlying cause is likely inflammation. And if you want to defeat inflammation so it doesn't go from chronic aches and pains to permanent damage, you want to check out a product backed by 35 years of clinical research known as Omega XL. It attacks the inflammation that is causing your pain and I can personally attest to it. It is part of my daily regimen, particularly uh, after working out. It's part of my post-workout recovery routine. Omega XL neutralizes the inflammation that causes all of that pain from the inflammation, the stiff joints, muscles, etc. And if you want to get started, right now they've offered a great deal. Buy one, get one free. Get a second bottle for free right now when you order Omega XL at OmegaXL.com slash Steve. That's OmegaXL.com slash Steve. Again, the website, OmegaXL.com slash Steve. Or give them a call at 800-844-4888. That's 800-844-4888. Let's get to Theology Thursday. And this week, we're going to answer an email from a listener named Peter. Says, I have questions that I have been struggling with lately. I attend a house church here where I live. Um, We usually have 15 to 30 people meeting in our elders' house, and we're part of a larger network of house churches in our area. We were always able to meet throughout the coronavirus pandemic, being under the advised numbers, meeting in private, and having options to divide up to even smaller groups. Even so... Our leadership still decided to neglect the physical gathering since March 17th when our governor shut down churches. After 99 days without authentic gathering as a church family, we still have no clear plan on when to meet again. Now, this is a house church. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This is not where I go to church, where our family goes to church, Valley EV Free, which is one of the largest churches in West Des Moines, you know, when everything's good to go, three services on all over the campus because they have the community center across the street with the cafe that hosts services as well. So on our campus, three services each Sunday, one on a Saturday night, 4,000 people a weekend come. So we're not talking about trying to figure out how to social distance and Bring these people back and, you know, our, our church, our, we're calling it regathering, going through that process. We're not, this isn't civil engineering here, right? Right. This is a house church. Okay. 
On top of this problem now, we have the Black Lives Matters movement finding its way into our church network, leading to division and arguments. Given all this turmoil, I've been listening to your podcast episodes related to these topics and the unity of the faith. So here's my question using your examples. What are the convictions that we need to have in common as a properly functioning church, community, and as friends? How can I function as a member of the church called to rebuke, reprove, correct, and repent if we don't even have a common understanding of what is and isn't right and wrong, for example? As friends, how can I continue friendship with those who would use the government for the direct harm of my family? For example, one is willing to label uh, keeping your children uh, unvaccinated as child abuse, taking my right to defend my family away, actively pushing for governmental theft, etc. Finally and ultimately, when do you separate from association with an individual or group based on your convictions? That's all? In, in your case, right now. <laughs> That's all he wants us to address. Sounds trite. This should only take a few hours, I'm sorry, minutes. No, uh, there's there's a lot of good questions here. Um, but I want to start in a way you're probably not anticipating, which will shock no one, because I think my mom was going to name me contrarian, but thought it would get me beat up in school, so she just went with Steve. It's a pretty name. All right? So, and, I, and I'm going to do this because I think it's actually the biblical model for how to address these situations. One of the things, well, one of the 10,000 false choices that we are often provided is that it's a false choice between we never correct or rebuke or um, we only do this without looking in the mirror first, right? That's, that's how this is often presented. And, it's, and, and we're not the first generation to not do this well. I mean... Jesus spends a good deal of time in his earthly ministry articulating the antidote to this false choice. Wait, why do you why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye when you don't consider the beam in your own, right? Yep. Uh, you know, uh, Peter writes in one of his epistles, it is you know, judgment begins in the house of God first. It is better to have to not know God's law than to ha- to know it and then disobey, right? So what I'm about to suggest to you Peter and to others in your situation as a first step, what I'm about to suggest is, I think, not unique. And it's frankly not even the way I'm wired. I mean, the way I'm wired is, let's roll. <laughs> All right. I'm your Huckleberry. Let's do this. Um, but that's where you can get to a get thee behind, a, you know, me Satan moment real quick when you're ready to roll like that. Sometimes you got to slow your roll. Hit the pause button. Here's the question. Do we first understand what it means to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to pray for our enemies and those who would persecute us? I think we have to start there first. Otherwise, we are going to descend into self-righteousness, man, and self-pity. One, one tribe of pseudo-victims versus another one group of civic martyrs versus another. And as a church body, we're supposed to rise above all of that. We're, we are not supposed to succumb nor conquer 
according to the spirit of the age. We neither succumb to it nor play by its rules, nor seek its approval or affirmations. When one of the great challenges of, of this whole thing called our faith is, can I live an ethical or in a belief system counterculturally when everything else is going against me? And then where does the ability to, to do that, where does that come from? So I think it is incumbent. You know, one of the thing, one of the reasons why the church came up with something called just war theory was to do this, was to check its own motivations, its its own um, it, its own ethics before it signed off on a, something that was going to be forever. The people that die don't come back; they're dead, they're gone, they're not coming back. Whatever potential they had is gone. If, they, if they're not redeemed before they're killed, they're not redeemed. They're dead. And then there's the collateral damage aspect. That's just, that's just counting your enemy. What about the collateral damage? Innocents get caught in the crosshairs. That's unavoidable. So stop and count the cost. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the evil we are, we are about to confront really evil, or is it just really annoying me? Do I, do, I, do I need to confront this, or I just really, really want to? Like, we don't go to war for Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships. That, that, the church doesn't abide by that. We don't, we don't care. No, that's not really a just cause. So... That ethical system was permitted or, or, or was instituted not because pacifism is, is righteous. I don't believe it's righteous either. I don't, I don't believe the Bible preaches pacifism. But I also think it doesn't preach militarism, conquerism. That every now and then, you have to acknowledge though, some men just want to watch the world burn. Every now and then, Two people are walking into a situation, only one's walking out. That's, you know, that's reality. It, it, it's, it's not a, it's a recognition of the reality of life east of Eden. Just war theory is not, to, is not a road to pacifism. It's a road to justice. Is this a justified, is, the, is, the, is this justified as a conflict? Is the damage that it will cause, the carnage that will ensue, the casualties that will occur, are they justified given what the dispute is really about? And that's along those lines, I think, before we start talking about the error of all those around us, let's check our own motivations first. Are we praying for our church leaders? particularly the ones that fall into error. Are we praying for our fellowship, particularly when it flirts with false teaching? Are we, or, or do we go skip that right over all of that and go right to the grumbling? Right? 
And and I'll tell you why I bring this up because I'm I'm excellent, man. And I'm in a business that incentivizes it. I am excellent at going right to the grumbling part. How about you guys? I mean, I I can nail that. Oh, yeah. Like I stick the landing on that puppy every single time. It's the whole praying for people when they're flirting with disaster thing. I'm I'm just I'm batting just below the Mendoza line on that one. Just I'm going to be straight up honest. Okay, I'm I'm kind of the reason why I recognize it so well when you guys don't read what I post on my social media and just react to the headline without reading what I said and just ready fire aim. You know why I recognize that so well? Because you know what I have a tendency to do too often. That same thing, ready fire aim. So let, let's make sure. When it comes, when it, when we get to the rebuking, it's justified rather than we're looking for justification. If you know the distinction I'm trying to draw, Mm -hmm. am I trying to win an argument or am I taking a righteous stand? Right. We always like to point out to the, to the nicer than God crowd, the examples like Christ turning over the money changers, fashioning a whip of cords, but let's keep in mind, he wasn't throwing a tantrum. He was making a point. He wasn't having a bad day. He was making a point. They were desecrating something. So what's the point we want to make? Or are we just ticked off? And I think we, before we even react to the rest of this, we have to stop and check our own motivations there first. Because this, our, I think our level of success can absolutely be dictated by what our own motivations are in taking this on. That would be my first counsel. Now, once that once that step has been taken, I think it it's funny to hear the the Catholic to my right immediately jump in and drop the schism card. <laughs> All right. But um History has shown purification efforts just rarely work. Now, here's the question, though. Even if they rarely work, are we obligated to try? I kind of think we are. Now, let's define try. Did we bring, did we bring to our leadership the issues that we're concerned about and do so in a way where our intent is for the truth to win, not for us to win. You know, if you want to know how I learned the lesson over the years to not so much care about what decision leaders make, but how they made their decisions it's because I made a whole bunch of mistakes early in my career, carrying up only about the decisions leaders make because I don't, and the mistakes I made by just judging based on that, I don't know all the factors going in. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't know everything they have to negotiate, everything, every ball they're trying to juggle. I got the 10,000-foot view. I get to backseat drive. It's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. And I made a lot of presumptive judgments that in the end weren't justified. So I had to, I, I, you know, Aaron was talking last hour, uh, looking at the example Dallas Jenkins. His, his career was basically in the toilet, done, finished. You know, now he's presided over the most successful grassroots project maybe in the entire history of, 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 of you know, American entertainment. 
I, I learned a valuable lesson from the mistakes I made and how it nearly ended my career. There were two reasons my career nearly ended early on. One is because people didn't want to hear the truth and wanted to take me out. That's the part I often tell you about. <laughs> I don't often tell you about the part, though, that I played in this, where I made a bunch of presumptive statements. I remember once I was in a men's group, and my, one of my accountability guys confronted me on this, a guy named Brad. And he said, he said, just look me right in the face, and he said, Steve, you remind me of the guy that is, the, is, 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 is willing to go into the mall to catch the bad guy when everybody else is hiding. But you go in there and just start spraying buckshot all over the mall. And all kinds of innocent people get shot down. And eventually, yeah, you get the bad guy. You take him down. But you, there's like no regard for the process, no regard for the collateral damage whatsoever. And then you're wondering at the end why people don't want to pin a medal on you, uh, you know, because of the carnage, the cost that you made everybody pay, um, as opposed to just walking in there with a plan, you know. With, with maybe more of a sniper mentality and and taking a couple of steps of, uh, you know, thinking things through before he just went in there and started opening fire. And I was really mad when he told me this because it was true. I was doing that. So my first counsel is to check. as um, I believe it was the great prophets known as Cypress Hill. Uh, who once said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Was it, I believe it was them. Was it them? I, I know they did insane in the membrane. I was born in the 19th century, remember? That's right. I know they did insane in the membrane, but I'm pretty sure that they dropped that little uh, pearl of knowledge on us as well. Okay? So check our own motivations first. Because here's the other thing too. One, there's two reasons why I think God wants us to do this. One is because it aligns our hearts with his. But two is, you're far more likely to be successful. You're not going to out-emote them. You know what I'm saying? You just go in there with your emotion and your, and your zeal and your id versus theirs. Truth isn't going to win. It's, it's your angle versus theirs. That's another lesson I had to learn earlier in my career. Ask a lot of questions. The Socratic dialogue, as Todd talked about last hour. What does Jesus often do with his trolls? What does Jesus often do with the false teachers that he confronts when they try to confront him? How does he often respond? With a question. Hey, um, you know, we don't really think you have the power to forgive sins. Uh, only God can do that. So where does your power to say your sins are forgiven come from? And he's like, I'll tell you where my power comes from if you tell me where John the, power, John the Baptist got his power to baptize from. Just, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Teacher, what must I do to be saved? I, I mean, you know, um, uh, keep the commandments. Well, what if I've done all of that? Well, I mean, have you done this? Here's one more thing you have, you have to do. Have you done that? Who do the people say that I am? What do you think? Are you going to leave too? A lot of times he responds with a question because it puts it, it puts the onus back on the other party to reveal what their true motivations are. So that would be my second counsel. Ask a lot of questions. Um, maybe you're too young to remember this character, Peter, and I'm barely old enough to remember. But 
the old detective show Columbo. And he was famous for, uh, you know, this doesn't make much sense to me, kind of playing it off, you know? And, and his famous line was always at the end when he was about to Perry Mason somebody. It was always, oh, can I ask one more question? And that meant you better lawyer up. <laughs> right? That's what, when he said that, you knew it was time for you, uh, you were caught and it was time to lawyer up, right? Ask a lot of questions. Hey, pastor, can you show me um, where, you know, I was looking at the Black Lives Matters website and it says they want to destroy the nuclear family. And I mean, the nuclear family is like the first government God gives human beings in the book of Genesis. A father, a mother, and children, you know? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, hey, I think it's past time this country puts its racist past behind it for good too. I'm totally in on that. But can you show me where like their agenda lines up with a biblical worldview? Can you show me? You show me. When the most successful argumentative technique I had when we took on the judges here in Iowa 10 years ago was bringing lawyers and judges on the show and, and just asking them questions. Where do you think the law comes from? How do we know when the, a court opinion is right? What do we do when it's wrong? What's the standard by which we, either, we can even know what right and wrong are? What's your standard? Because, you know, you may not like my standard. But what's yours then? Most of them could not answer these questions. And you know why? Because most of the time, they'd never been forced to. It was just all emotion. So I'd ask a lot of those kinds of questions. Hey, you know, the church down the street has been meeting for inside a building with like 100, 200 people for a few weeks. They haven't seen a massive spike of coronavirus cases. There's a reason we can't get together here in our house. You know, five, ten of us. Even if we just, you know, had groups of five and we met in separate rooms. Ask a lot of questions. Because the other reason to ask questions is it doesn't just reveal the motivations of the person that you're prompting an answer from, but it reveals their sincerity at the exact same time. Are you being scammed or not? If you just jump up right away and, you know, go all John the Baptist, not that I'm necessarily opposed to that most days, but if you're at that point, then you're probably at a point that it's time to move on. If you think the situation is salvageable, redeemable, or you're not sure, it sounds to me like you're not sure. That's why you're asking, what are the signs, right? Start asking questions. That's how you'll get sure. And that, that would be my advice to all of you listening and watching around the country. Ask a lot of questions. Well, why can't we open? Hey, did you know this about Black Lives Matter? Did you know what was on their website? Hey, did you know that the co-founder said she's a Marxist? She's a, she, you know, that's a, you know, did you know Marxism rejects God? Rejects theism. Thinks religion was the opiate of the masses. Ask a lot of those questions. 
because then ultimately they will indict themselves. You gave them every opportunity to accept correction or acknowledge truth. And then if they don't, you didn't leave. They left you. Your conscience is clear. Let me stop there and pause. You guys have any thoughts on that? Well, you have a, uh, how, how is the wording put in the Declaration of Independence? A long, a train, long train of, of abuses. abuses. See, yes. you don't, you, you, you didn't have a very targeted one issue letter. You seem to lay out a long train of abuses. Right, right. And listen, I, if there's one fundamental difference between your Protestant tribe, again, like like uh, uh, with the Catholic Church, many rooms, though, I, I understand that. But it, it's, you know, Catholics aren't even sup- really supposed to be shopping around for, like, you're still technically supposed to go to your neighborhood parish. You're not supposed to be shopping around for the pastor you like the best. You, you can go where you want to. And it's pretty clear you need to in my Catholic estimation of this. I mean, fellowship is crucial to this thing called the church, regardless of tribe and you you seem to be wanting for fellowship on many mm-hmm. levels it seems to reach the point of flat out antagonism not not iron sharpening iron which is, is i mean good grief i don't want to be a part of, of a church where iron isn't sharpening iron as steve always says but i don't see any of that here i, I see the church becoming the world. I mean, I, I just, all I see is carrying left and right with what's going on. So I, Steve made a very generalized and rightly so, because we, you, you, it helps you be dispassionate. But if we just put us, if that's my specific diagnosis of where you're at, it doesn't feel like you f- can feel at home on multiple levels where you're at. Yeah. And I know this is in the context of at least the email or the, the house church uh, that they attend and and in bigger churches, you know, different contexts, um, same principles still uh, apply. Um, one thing really quick, I, I, I generally agree with what Todd is saying, um, but I think the only reason why you write an email with, like that is because generally maybe things were great before this went down and now now you now you're gobsmacked um so there's definitely some some tension there one thing one thing i think is is really really important to remember if you are in a position where you are led and you've checked and double checked and triple checked your motivations to confront leaders a leader your maybe even your pastor in your church and you know don't do it lightly most of the time well, I'll just speak for myself. Most of the time when I want to confront somebody, it's because I want to confront somebody or uh, conflict with somebody, not because it's actually necessarily the right right course of action in that particular moment. Remember, this is my word of advice. Remember that pastors, especially the bigger the churches you get, especially the bigger the church that you are a part of gets, you may just see your own sin in your own life, in your own baggage, in your own life, in your spouse's baggage, in your lives, and the people immediate next, immediately next to you at work. Maybe, maybe you see that stuff going on. 
when you're when you're the pastor or leadership at a, at a church, you see all of the people coming into church with their Sunday best, looking smile, smiling, looking dapper, looking happy, looking like everything is fine. You look out at those people, and the pastors know all of your baggage, all of it, all of your foibles, all of the things you struggle with, um, and all that is to say. Always come into this with empathy, <laughs> with a lot of empathy, because the pastors, even though they're not maybe directly involved with it, they're they're probably aware of it and are praying for you as well. But just be aware of of that as well, and always always come into these these types of things with empathy. Does not excuse, and it, it, it's not an excuse at all if they're in error. But that's my one one piece of advice. Generally, though, in this specific circumstance, I I tend to agree with what Todd said. I mean, the overwhelming odds are you you have to leave. That's the overwhelming odds. But you also serve a Lord that leaves ninety nine behind to find the one lost sheep, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, therefore, it is in you know as John says, we love because He first loved us. It is incumbent if He does that for us. It is incumbent that we give people the chance to return. Um, before the before we take the lampstand away, to use another biblical expression. So I, I would confront them, but gently. And I don't mean that tonally. I mean that in techni- in terms of technique. Ask a lot of questions and have them reveal to you what's really uh, on their heart and where their heart really is. More in a moment. Want to know a secret to staying sweat-free this summer? I recommend Tommy John's ultra-breathable underwear. And yes, they've got uh, underwear and bras for the ladies as well. Uh, They have a range of summer-ready breathable options, but it's their cool cotton underwear for men and women. It is like having your own on-body AC. Tommy John's cool cotton is made from premium natural cotton for enhanced airflow, and it evaporates sweat super fast, keeping you drier, cooler, and more comfortable than regular cotton. If you want to add some chill uh, to uh, to the areas down there that you're trying to cover up when summer heats up, choose Tommy John's Cool Cotton Underwear. Now, I could tell you a whole bunch of other stuff about how this is made and why you should buy it. This is the best recommendation I can give you. I was given a few, a few pairs of this several months ago to try out for free before I agreed to discuss it and endorse it on the show. See if it's really good as they claim, right? I love this product so much. I have not once now, but twice with my own money, gone back and bought more. And it's the only underwear now that I I wear. This stuff is phenomenal, okay? So um, Tommy John is so confident in your underwear, uh, in their underwear, that if you don't love your first pair, you're going to get a full refund with the best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. All right, so for a limited time right now, go to TommyJohn.com slash Steve. TommyJohn.com slash Steve to get 20% off your first order. TommyJohn.com slash Steve. I, I love the product. Wear it every day. When I wear underwear. But that's some TMI. Let's get to three questions. Yo. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where <laughs> am I going? Who am I? A, a search and a question of identity. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. 
some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Oh, hey, that's me. Three questions on the Steve Day Show. Non-political, non-political questions. questions on yes. the Steve Day Show. Usually non-political means um, um, non-thinking on my part. Questions that I just kind of threw together at the last minute because I thought, oh crap, it's Thursday. That means it's th- time for three questions. Question number one, is this the weirdest time of your life? If so, what's the second weirdest? If not, what was the weirdest time? I don't think there's any question. Uh, this is the weirdest time in, in my life. And I, and I don't know. I don't, I can't come up with a close second. Like I, I, this is so odd. With that, well, you know, the term we're all using these days, unprecedented. This is so unprecedented that I almost feel like I shouldn't even come up with what the next weirdest moment is. It's just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And I guess if I came up with a, had to come up with a second to answer Aaron's question. Remember when we used to say 2016, bro. Remember that? Oh, yes. Remember how weird 2016 was? 2016, dude. Remember? Oh, yes. Guys, 2016 is the gospel of Luke compared to what's gone on right now. And I chose that one because that was the one that, you know... Luke, doctor, man of science. Orderly actually, accounts. Yes, tried to actually do research. Okay. Um, I, I rem, Go back and look at what we were tweeting and saying about how, how odd and strange 2016 was. And, and if you could jump in the DeLorean and go back and tell yourself that in 2020, the things we have seen would occur you would think no way no way dude you're alex jones it's not true no way this is going down and it all did so it, it, it's 2020 is tiger woods you know winning his first master by like 20 strokes okay i mean it's just it's playing another game of weird um and i guess if i had to pick another weird time in my life i'd pick 2016 but it just it seems so quaint compared to what's going on now what are your thoughts well i think the answer would be absolutely it this is it if we lived in a lot of other states besides iowa we've had the luxury of being able to get back to some kind of normal right in iowa more than a lot of places so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I have no problem with that answer in most people's lives. I, if I had a, a close second, uh, and it was pretty weird, but it, it's in that period between July and early December of 2008, which was the period of, and I've told the story before, but my arrest 
and it took that that long to get to trial and to just have the, the going into work every day around coworkers and a management that were actually rooting for me uh, to be uh, guilty and fired. So that, yeah. that was a pretty weird time. I that's mean, a I weird still, time. Yeah. That's back then when I, it, you know Steve and I are friends, but I'm not working for him, and you know I, I'm getting all kinds of calls. And one of them, Steve, is I can't remember how you heard about it, in which way you heard about it, but you know those calls were quite frequent. Like, man, what's up? What's going on? And um, yeah, so. That that's right there. Uh, for me, yeah, this is probably the weirdest time. A lot of changes, and of course, just for all the reasons you guys just meant uh, just mentioned. The second weirdest time was like when I went college, went to college, and got my first big boy job up in the Twin Cities. It's like that seems like a, another lifetime ago now. It's like it all like an out of body, didn't happen experience. But yeah, that was a weird time too, just because. A lot of things changing, a lot of things happening over a course of just a few years. Grow up quite a bit as well, uh, so that's interesting. This this year, and just this whole panic thing. What's the what's the main character in um, in Silence of the Lambs? Whatever her Hannibal Lecter. Well, not oh Clarice Starling. Clarice, yeah. yeah. You, you know when she goes and she interviews Hannibal Lecter, and he's sitting in that kind of glass containment cell. I feel like that's what we've been doing on this show hmm. with with the madness, with progressivism and leftism and just the spirit of the age for years now. We're just going down, interviewing it, examining it, and then leaving. Now, it, it feel, 2020 just feels like we woke up and we're inside the cell with Hannibal. Do you guys feel like nothing could be weirder than this? That like anything worse than this would just be all out societal collapse? Like yeah. nothing could be weirder than this. We're this close? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now that's because that's how I feel. Yes. Like it couldn't get weird. It could get worse, but it couldn't get weirder. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't get any weirder than the time we're in. And the only thing that gets worse is just a societal collapse at that point. I have moments every day where I'm looking around and just watching the things the zombies around me say and do and tolerate. I like, yeah, that it's it's bizarre. Question number two. If you could make a million dollars a year guaranteed, but it meant you had to live outside in a tent all year long, would you take the deal? Dude, you know what I could do with that tent for a million a year? It could it could be like the tent Richard Harris who is no, which 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 no, Caesar is he in Gladiator? Oh no, no. Okay. This isn't Harry Potter's tent. No, I mean it could be that kind of tent, no, man. That that, that 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 Caesar that Richard Harris plays no, in Gladiator. You're not Captain Kirk. That you're could not be Kobe some Yashi kind of a tent. Mer- no. <laughs> some kind of tent. The tent of all tents. All right. You've never tented like this before. You've never seen any tents like this. You can get sick of all the tents after I'm done with it. Are you kidding me? I'm taking it. Yeah, I'm taking it. That was not the spirit of Aaron's question. Yeah, I'm going to show you what tenting really looks like. (laughs) I'm in. That's, you know, normally these million dollars questions are, you know, they're a fool's errand. This one's actually intriguing to me. If I had to sleep on the ground, that would be my, I don't think my back could take a year no matter how much i wanted the million dollars and then but see you're just talking about is it you with all my other realities aaron like it's just me and my wife and my kids are inside basically yeah 
So then basically it's like prison and you're getting like, what's the, what, what are the conjugal visits? Is this what's happening? I you can look at I it that re- way. Honestly had not thought about it that hard. Well, yeah. You, so you I'm asked taking, the question. He didn't define tent. So I'm happy to I, define it for myself. Well, I literally started this segment saying I could not emphasize, <laughs> I emphasize how little I had thought about these questions. <laughs> I'm going uh, hey, to, I'm, I'm going to have to say no. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Caesar's tent because I can afford it for a million a year. Hell yeah. I'm yeah. saying no. We're there. You're yeah. doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, final question. Question number three. Oh, I didn't answer that question. Uh, yeah, I'd probably do that. Yeah, even if it was not a Caesar's tent, you can still have quite a few good things. And and uh, I just have to sleep there, I right? Just sleep there, live there. Yeah, that's that's okay. your that's your place. That's yeah. your house. That's nah, your like, new house. Uh, it's his house. Quite, Man cave in the tent. No, it's Steve. What are you doing? Do you doing? have much extension cord you can afford? A lot. A lot. With a million you bucks. You are the man cave guy. You're not being honest with yourself I'm about right to now. become a man tent. <laughs> about to become that. Uh, let's see. What's on your Mount Rushmore of ice cream-based snacks? So it can't be straight ice cream, but it has to be an ice cream-based baked uh, snack. Uh, that's a good one. I love Klondike bars. It's just been so long since I've had one. But I love Klondike bars are like um, drumstick ice cream cones. Mm-hmm. Is that an ice cream-based snack? Yep. All right. I like drumsticks, especially the ones that have the piece of chocolate at the very end. Just feels like it's kind of a bonus. You know, you, you feel like you're getting a valid value added. When you get to the bottom of the cone, it's got that little piece of uh, you know, decadent chocolate there at the end. You know what I'm talking about? See, so you've thought about this way more than about the 10th thing. No, t- <laughs> way more. <laughs> I don't need any specifics on this question here, and I got this one. All right. Uh, so I'm uh, Klondike bars. I like quite a bit, particularly now they got the different flavors, you know, with the mint and stuff like that. Um, drumsticks would would certainly be up there. Um, what else am I thinking of? Um, man, hard to stay inside the lines. There's so many that I could pick. Oh, I love the uh, Nestle Toll House. Uh, Chocolate chip cookie uh, ice cream sandwich. Have you had that before? No. With two uh, gooey Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookies as the as the sandwich, and then I like uh, vanilla, you know, ice cream in the middle. Yeah, that's number three. That's on the list as well. And then I'm trying to think back to the old days when living in growing up in Florida when you could have ice cream trucks. You know what was the what was the one? I love the strawberry shortcake. I love the eclair. So I'm trying to give like a throwback for the fourth one, you know? So are you going to put the strawberry shortcake? No, in that's one of my favorites from the truck. All yes. right. If you're going with that, are you going to put that on your list or not? Yeah, I have to because right. this is much harder okay. for me to do than you. All right. If you're going to put the strawberry shortcake on there, then I'll go with the eclair from the old ice cream truck days when I was a kid. So those would be my four. Does it have to be commercial that people would recognize or can it be more home style? Yeah, like um, it can be like, you know, frozen yeah, vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Frozen uh, vinegar well, ice cream. This is where, I, you know, that holidays, special occasions, uh, you know, I turn into Steve. My wife makes this amazing, uh, it's a chocolate graham cracker crust pie. It's ice cream with the whipped cream. It's mm. mixed in. So yeah. it's, it's like pudding pie kind of. Yeah. That thing. That's the truth right there. So there's that. There's the strawberry shortcakes. Uh, there is, yeah, I like the, uh, they make a, like a, a Nestle crunch. Oh that's, yeah. That's like my favorite. That's a good one. Blizzard. Yeah. And they, I think, so the coating is like Nestle, if memory serves. 
I haven't had one in a long time. And then they make those little, like, they're almost like bites, too, but they're ice cream. Yeah, you get those in the movie theater and stuff. Yeah, yeah those are good. Yeah, those are good. Yeah, I agree. It's a little difficult for me because I I can't eat most of that stuff with, you know, gluten in it. But I would say just the classic ice cream bar, um, not the ice cream cookie bar, but whatever you call those with its a little thin layer of chocolate around the ice, you know, the outside. Uh, the fudge fudge sickles. Um, yeah. I, I really like they're not popsicles, but they're basically like frozen sherbet, which I yeah, which I count as ice cream. And then the ones that I really like and I haven't had for a while. Are the uh, the ice cream Snickers bars? Oh yeah! Oh my goodness, those things are un- underrated. Underrated. So those are my four. All right, Todd's going to tell us what's in the overtime here in a minute. Beforehand, though, if you want to know um, why you want to take a look at Rough Greens Vita Smart, look at your own diet. Uh, a lot of the food that we are eating nowadays doesn't have those vitamins, minerals, nutrients, omega oils, prebiotics, probiotics. You know the good stuff that keeps us healthy. It's stripped out of our food for mass production, mass consumption, so we can buy it cheaply and it stays on the on the shelf, on the store for months, if not years. And that's why we got to go get supplements to put all that good stuff back in our food. Same thing applies with our pet's food as well. And that's where Rough Greens Vitasmart comes in. It's not a dog food. It's a supplement that you put on your dog's food that apparently makes it taste, it's a powder, apparently makes it taste, it makes it taste even better to your pup because it certainly does to ours. Our dog, Cap, loves this stuff. And so they want to offer you a 14-day jumpstart bag right now to get your dog thriving again in two weeks or less all right and it's just $14.95 if you want to give it a shot at roughgreens.com slash blaze that's r-u-f-f roughgreens.com slash blaze again roughgreens.com slash blaze todd what's the overtime topic today well Aaron and I brought it to your attention just as the show was starting yesterday because it was breaking at that time. But Aaron's going to pull up the graphic, and you are going to go through the entire graphic that was put forth yesterday by the National uh, Smithsonian African American Museum about white oh, privilege no. and talk about oh, all this. of the things that they find cancerous about be- the mere act of being white throughout history. Have fun. I find I find that when Todd just has free reign over overtime, he he really tries to find ways to trigger you, and I'm all here. Yes, for it. yeah. I mean, this are you trying to get us fired? I listen. Th- this because fa- this is going to be some kind of thing. Listen. I'm vaguely familiar with it. This is going to be some kind of thing where, um, attempting to be wise, they become utter fools. They're going to take a whole bunch of values that are like universal and transcendent. Yes. Okay. Don't really apply to any particular, uh, you know, uh, skin tone. Correct. They're just like the laws of nature and nature's God. But they're going to give them. They're going to say that they're white. Yes. And therefore, inadvertently, make the, a racist claim that white culture is superior while claiming to pan it. Is that essentially what this does? It's I not, like where this is going already. It's not demonic at all. Well, if we're not on the air tomorrow, now you know why. It's the overtime, brother. Indeed. Until then, maybe. John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.